left the Israeli Navy. I was probably 25, 26 years old at the time. I uh, went traveling, so I backpacked to uh, East Africa for about six, seven months. So I think that was uh, something that kind of always stayed with me, seeing how people uh, live uh, very different lives in, in the tropics or in the developing world. And, and so I always... So this is one, and I will connect it. The second part is that after I returned and after I went to engineering school, I started working for about um, six years in a, as a professional private equity and venture capital investor in uh, food and agriculture. So initially working in, uh, in Israel and Europe, but then for about three years in, in California as an investor. And I got to, I had really the privilege of... Uh, working with some of the best companies in, in the space and, you know, people using uh, advanced genetics and uh, machine learning and computer vision, all of this really exciting stuff in agriculture. But what was interesting for me is the combination of both. So I saw how these amazing technologies get used to, in, in some way, to make the life of the, let's call it the American farmer, uh, uh, better, more productive, more efficient, and, you know, provide more healthier, cleaner food for the Western consumer. And that was such a massive uh, step away from what I saw in, in East Africa, for example, because eventually, you know, you see the American farmer, and I used to spend a lot of time in places like, you know, Iowa and in the Midwest, etc. And you see, and I used to remember, as a joke, saying that, Every farmer that you see, and you see these massive farms with the pigs and the corn, etc. I would say each one of those are you know, multi-millionaires. Just the value of their land is, you know, ten million dollars or more. Uh, so it gave them a lot of opportunity. They used to send their children to uh, very good schools, get the best uh, medicine possible, etc. And then you see the the farmer in the developing world, and they don't use any. They they are not even aware of any of these technologies. They use the same. Uh, seeds of, you know, that their uh, ancestors used and they don't get any access to this and they live a very poor life. So they don't necessarily have money to get better food, better education, better healthcare, etc. So I saw this disparity and also an opportunity to, to bring some of these really exciting technologies to improve the lives of the people who need it the most. That became even to some degree our mission. Um, and the scale is interesting because you know we talk about in the in the, uh, in the West, you know, in uh, Europe, in uh, North America. You know, we think about corn, soy, cotton, uh, even tomatoes. A lot of the the, the the foods that we consume, but we don't always realize how big everything else is. So if we think about the populations of the tropics, so this is about forty percent of humanity today. You know. East Asia, Africa, Latin America. It's also the fastest growing, so it's supposed to be about 50% of humanity in uh, two, three decades. Um, and they consume different uh, crops than we eat necessarily. So, uh, the tropic today, we work, for example, on bananas, coffee, and rice. Bananas, we don't necessarily, so we eat a lot of bananas. This is, you know, eat a couple of bananas every day, but it's the fourth most important food crop on the planet. A massive source of income for hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people. And while there are thousands of people working to, to make corn a little bit better every year, there's very, very few people working to improve the banana, actually save it from some of the diseases 
that are threatening the scope today. Are you a little surprised? It makes sense if you think about just the kind of adoption cycles that this new technology rolls out and Western or American farmers are the first to adopt it and use it and, you know, get the benefits out of that. That makes sense. But when you talk about coffee and bananas and rice, like those are huge, huge uh, markets. On paper, it seems like, well, how did this kind of get, it seems like it's been overlooked. How did it get overlooked? And you're saying, um, hey, there's an opportunity here that's a little bit more untapped and there's a lot of need here. And that's why we're going to put our time and energy into it. I mean, is it fair to say it was overlooked or maybe, and you guys are kind of getting to it in early stages or how would you frame that? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I've, I've had several theories on why that happens. Uh, if you ask me tomorrow, I might give you a different answer, but I think that to oversimplify it, I think that the big part of it is the physical distance between the research and the field. Mm. For example, again, corn and soy, people grow it in the Midwest, and you don't need to travel very far to get to some very, very, very good universities and research institutions in uh, across the United States, or in Europe, you'll go to uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, there are very good research institutions that are close and they sit under the same government. So the government will put money into researchers in, uh, in, in the same country, in Europe or in, the, in North America, to improve the, the genetics, for example, for the, for the local farmers. Now, if you look at banana corn, banana coffee and rice, the government that where the crops are being grown is usually quite removed from the people who consume it, and usually they don't have a lot of money. So uh, if you look at the, the, the country that exports the most bananas today in the world, uh, Ecuador, the, there is research done there, but from an R&D spend, it's nothing compared to what you would see in uh, North America and in uh, Europe. So I think it's the allocation of uh, R&D money. Yeah, that, that's making a lot of sense. It, in another way, I would think about it is maybe, you know, it, in the U.S., as an example, you have both the supply and the demand side all in the same country, whereas uh, you're talking about groups that are providing the supply, but they themselves don't have the demand as much. And so there's just a different kind of infrastructure and incentives in place that have put them behind. So this is one part of it. It's a big part of it. You know, I'm, I'm, as we were speaking, you know, I'm thinking about it. So you will see, for example, some research done in, uh, you know, Western academic uh, institutions on, uh, on crops like uh, coffee, banana, or, you know, kind of other tropical crops, but it's usually considered as, a, a, you know, a charitable or altruistic type research. You know, we want to help the people in the developing world now. In order to make effect in the field, you know, the, the, the basic research is very important, you know, but it's usually, you know, it's one professor and a couple of postdocs or something like that. It's very small scale, but in order to then scale it and bring it to the field, you need something that's quite, uh, quite complex and large. So in, in, there are no uh, small seed companies in the genetic space. You know, usually we're talking about big organizations that can, uh, you know, do IP and regulation and uh, different types of uh, research. 
Um, and those bodies today, those big organizations, these big companies are also today based in uh, the developed markets and much less so in uh, the developing world. Yeah. I want to get into each um, of the efforts with coffee, banana and rice. But before we do, I'm curious how you explain what tro uh, Tropic Bio does when you're talking to someone who's outside the industry, who doesn't know all the kind of isn't as familiar with it. Like, how do you describe it to maybe a friend over drinks or something like that? Uh, again, it depends on the drink, but uh, right. <laughs> I say that usually I would say the Tropic is one of the leading uh, agricultural gene editing companies in the world. And we are, uh, we're based in the UK. We have a team today of about 150 professionals. And we develop new varieties of uh, tropical crops, uh, primarily uh, coffee, banana, and rice, uh, using gene editing and other genetic tools. So taking existing elite varieties of these crops and improving them to make them uh, more resistant to diseases or better quality, etc. with the intention of eventually selling them back to uh, farmers. So we are building a, a, a global tropical seeds company. So maybe similar to what we see in uh, the Western world companies like uh, BSF, Bayer, uh, Portiva, which are seeds companies primarily associated with vegetables or corn. So we want to do the same thing, but with tropical agriculture. Yeah. And uh, my understanding is that coffee is a big focus of yours right now. Do you want to talk a little bit about why that is a primary focus and, and what the kind of the opportunity is there, or maybe what the problem that existed with coffee that you saw? Sure. So coffee, interestingly, was the first corp that we started to work on uh, when we founded the company in 2016. Um, and coffee, maybe to start, is, is a very, very large industry. Uh, we take it uh, almost for granted sometimes. And I'm, as I'm speaking, I'm, I'm raising yeah. a glass of coffee in my, and I'm drinking it. Uh, humanity consumes north of uh, 2 billion cups of coffee every day. It's the most popular or the most consumed beverage after water. Uh, it has a consumer market or, you know, depending on the research, but I would say $250 billion a year is a, is, is a fair estimate. Um, but also on the production side, it's massive. So the, the, the data that we have is that about 25 million people on the planet uh, work in coffee cultivation. And if you add to that, you know, the family members, that's probably another 100 million people. So you have 125 million people on the planet that depend primarily for their livelihood on coffee production. Uh, that's more than 1% of humanity. So it's a very, very, very big hope. Uh, now, the challenge that we see with coffee, I would say is probably not very different from all other groups that we're seeing, which is, uh, you know, farmers, of course, always want more, uh, more yield, better quality. So there's always kind of this race to, to do better. But at the same time, uh, what is different today for maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago is uh, climate change. So across the board, what we're seeing, so there's always challenges now with changing weather patterns, uh, you know, areas where it was always relatively easy to grow any crop today. It's harder because suddenly you have uh, more water, less water, more heat, different chance. So that's always a big issue now with climate change. There is a secondary aspect of it that people don't appreciate so much is diseases. 
So we're just seeing outbreaks of everything. All you know, every pop that we see today, I don't you know, there's a few diseases that maybe a few years were manageable and small. Now everything is out of control because once the ecological systems kind of get out of balance, uh, diseases move in. So there's a lot of things in, in, in to do with coffee. Um, and what we've seen probably over the last year, year and a half, is also the coffee prices have jumped up quite significantly because of uh, challenges with uh, supply, uh, all kinds of uh, weather issues in Brazil, etc. Now, in most crops, the standard way of overcoming some of these challenges would be either through you know investment in the field in all kinds of technology, which is not very simple in coffee because most these people who are producing coffee are not very wealthy, or through traditional breeding. So basically taking the existing crop and breeding it to make it a, a higher yielding, better tasting, more resistant to disease. The challenge with coffee is that it's, it's a tree. And it takes a lot of time to breed. It can take you 25, 30 years to breed a new variety of coffee, even if it's uh, possible. And that's too, too long to wait. Here comes uh, gene editing that allows you to much more precisely change the genetic makeup of the, of the coffee tree without necessarily having to wait 30 years to, uh, to efficiency. It's, it's, much, it's much faster. Uh, for example, one of the things that we are doing today in coffee is what's called high-solubility coffee. So it's uh, something that we started several years ago. So, for example... Uh, Today, about just over 40% of coffee production in the world is what's called Robusta coffee. So it's not the nice uh, Arabica coffee that we buy in our uh, you know, nice coffee shop in London. It's primarily used for uh, instant coffee production, which is about 40% of global consumption. Through gene editing, we can change the bean of the tree to make it a bit more soluble. So it's easier to extract the, the instant coffee or the coffee solids from it. So eventually you can increase the yield of production from the field quite significantly. And if you want to use it in different ways, you can say that uh, it's, you know what, what used to take 11 hectares of coffee to produce, now you can do it in 10 or 9 hectares of, uh, of land. So there are benefits. So this is just one example. I think in the future we might look also at other things in coffee, for example, diseases, which uh, uh, again are, are a big issue in every crop today. Yeah. So it sounds like you have the ability to say, um, we can do things that increase yield. Um, growing is a risky business and we can mitigate risk by being more resistant to diseases or changes in the weather, weather and whether that's temperature or water. Like these are, these are things that are on the table that your guys, uh, team is working on. Who are the, when you're speaking with people, who are the early adopters who get it? And are very attracted to that instant. I'm sure there's. I'm sure you talk to some people who are more interested in this than others. Yeah. So it very much depends on the industry, uh, and we usually speak with with a lot of people along the value chain, all the way from the farmers to the traders to the processors and even the retailers and consumers. But I would say that it's not depend. You know, in different groups, it might be the different people, but probably the big differentiator from who very much listen to who care less is to do very much with need. So, for example, uh, 
usually the farmers are very much in need because they are uh, you know the first uh, to be yeah. affected by everything and they they, they are you know they are uh, traditionally retained the, the, the least in the, in the value chain but these things they uh, they go downstream so I would say, for example, two years ago when coffee prices were relatively low, we, we could come to a big uh, coffee company, talk to them, we can uh, improve yield or uh, this and this. And they were, okay, you know, it's very nice, very interesting. Uh, you know, we all keep us informed. Now when coffee prices are much higher and there's uh, challenges with uh, supply, suddenly everyone, you know, everyone's uh, attention is more uh, directed. Um, rice, you know, three years ago when we made the strategic decision to increase to 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 incorporate a third crop rice you know a lot of people came and said you know rice it's uh, it's not interesting it's smallholders no one cares uh, there's no money in rice uh, and we strongly believe that actually there is an opportunity in rice because eventually you know rice close to 25 percent of global uh, calorie consumption and why does no one care about rice? Right. To today, I think the, the the question has been answered. It's not just that food prices have increased. There are shortages of rice in some very very big places like India, and suddenly all of the big companies that you know three years ago didn't understand why we're doing rice. Suddenly everyone wants to do rice, and suddenly everyone is interested. So, so I would say that. Key pillar for us has always been to really focus when the where, where the need is greatest. Uh, sometimes it's not very visible today, but it might become visible in a few years. And I know it's 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 quite uh, bleak to say it, but because of climate change, anything that bets on uh, improving yield, finding of diseases. It's a very good bet because you know, things are not going to be better in a few years. Of the of the three that you're working right now, between coffee, banana, and rice, which one is the most sensitive to temperature changes or fluctuations in um, precipitation? All of them. <laughs> really? All of them. All of them. They're, they're modern agriculture has become so uh, advanced, so. Uh, Think about most of these crops as, uh, you know, Lamborghinis. You know, these are the highly developed, you know, we, we think about, I'll give you an example, banana. When we started to work on banana six years ago, you know, our, in my mind, you know, I thought about banana cultivation, go to the jungle and those people with uh, machetes, uh, you know, hauling you know, uh, bunches of bananas, which so it's, there are these people as well. But it's an incredibly sophisticated uh, supply chain and process. There's a lot of different types of uh, physical handling in it. Of uh, it's, it's an incredibly fine-tuned supply chain. And as these things evolve, every single cog in the machine, you know, can create a lot of uh, disruption. So all of them are very uh, sensitive to different uh, diseases. Uh, and when we see it over the last uh, few years, whether it's a uh, Corona and then you know everything that came after, uh, everything yeah. is sensitive. Do you come into many misconceptions, whether it's among like late, what you might call like late adopters in the industry or, or different players in the industry who just don't fully understand um, what it is that your team is working on or what the you know 
what the solution, why this solution is so needed? Is there anything like misconceptions that you wish you could just clear up? There's, there's a few. Uh, but I would say philosophically, I would say that people don't understand the, a lot of people, especially in, uh, well, you know, um, we're based in the UK, okay? People in the UK, we spend on average about 8.3% of our income on uh, food. Uh, so over the last couple of years, food prices globally have come up by 40%. So, you know, I go to the market next to my house and, and now I pay uh, four and a half pounds for a piece of bread that used to cost me 3.5 uh, pounds a, a year ago. And I'm, okay, you know, it's, it's fine. So I, I buy it, it's good bread. Um, you know, you have places like the Philippines where people would spend 40% of their income on uh, food and now add on top of that another 40% their lives have been uh, tremendously impacted. So I think people don't necessarily realize how big the problem is and how much it's not going to be any easier over the next 20, 30 years. Uh, you know, uh, climate change is not coming down. And this discussions of, uh, you know, should we adopt this technology or that technology? Or you know, I, I don't imagine that we have so much privilege anymore. We we will need to use every every tool in the box in order to continue people uh, well fed. Uh, you know, I see again philosophical, but you know, let's put that aside. Other misconceptions, I think we get asked a lot about uh, regulation, for example, because. People talk about gene editing. Uh, is it is it GMO? Is it genetic modification? And, and because there's a lot of different terminology that's being used, uh, so a lot of the time we we try to clarify to explain what it is that we're doing. What we would usually say is that uh, there's a difference between regulation and science. Uh, GMO genetic modifications are uh, regulatory definitions, whereas gene editing or other things is scientific. So on the science side, we usually differentiate between two types of uh, science, what's called uh, transgenesis and gene editing today. So transgenesis is still a big thing, but it's the process of transferring uh, genes or DNA from one organism to another. So for example, if I want to have a corn that is resistant to a certain disease, I might take a gene that conveys resistance to this disease from another plant and move it to the corn through genetic means. This is transgenesis and this is colloquially referred to as a GMO, genetically modified organisms, and it's, it's very hard to bring such a product to the market. Many countries uh, forbid it. Gene editing is a different, uh, it's primarily a lot of tools that have been developed over the last decade, even though there are older uh, variants. But the, the interesting benefit of gene editing that it allows us to do these types of change the DNA of uh, plants, for example, without incorporating foreign DNA. So in many places in the world, or say growing almost all of the world today, it is regarded as non-GMO. So it's gene edited, it's regulated, but not regulated as GMO. So it's much faster to bring this products today to the market. It's much cheaper, it's much more available. And it's what allows us to do it in banana, whereas 
10 years ago in, in the day of Jojima, it would have been too expensive and impossible for a company like us to work on, uh, on bananas. Yeah. So that's another conception, yeah. Do you, do you feel like those differences in the way regulation interprets that for the consumer to see that label is in a good place? Or do you think that consumers' continued uh, misunderstanding of this is harmful because there are brands or suppliers who are fearful of that misconception uh, and so they stay away from new advancements because they don't know how the public will respond to that or maybe somewhere in between i think i think it's a very good question at least my 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 understanding my philosophy is that it all eventually comes down to the consumer so the brand the regulation eventually the regulation the regulators uh, care about the public as they should and they're also driven by the public so if the public so for example in the 1990s uh, the public had a lot of uh, concerns about transgenesis or GMO technology. Uh, I would say probably most of these have been, uh, you know, it's, it's proven to be a very safe uh, source of food. But at the time, the public or the way some of the companies brought these products to the market, they didn't discuss with the public enough and direct regulators reacting to the panic that came from the consumers created regular, regulatory barriers that are very, very high. I would say that understanding that eventually the public both impacts regulation as well as the brands, because brands, you know, they, they, they want to sell to the public, and if the public doesn't like what they're selling, so they'll avoid it. So for us, a lot of our... Uh, Focus it was about uh, communicating from with the public from day one and based on some very very basic uh, principles. So the first principle is that we only work on on products that are not just very very good; they're also relatively easy to explain. So I can sit with you and talk to you about why it is important to have a high solubility coffee or banana that is resistant to the disease that's killing off the bananas. There are other things that we could have worked on that might actually be good, but it's very hard to explain. People just don't get it. So we try to avoid that. So this was the first principle. The second principle has been to be very, very transparent. So while we saw in the past companies that were doing these different types of uh, genetics, but trying to give it different names, so instead of calling it genetic, calling it you know advanced breeding technologies or kind of everything, but saying the word uh, gene or genetics, we've always said, you know, we, we use the most cutting-edge technologies to solve some of the biggest problems in the world. Uh, we invite uh, people like yourself and others to come and visit us, take pictures, tell our story. We are uh, we are an open book to create a level of trust with the public so people understand, you know, we are not... Uh, there's no uh, secret sources. Everything is available to them. Do you feel like people have taken you up on that transparency and, and that has paid off? I think I think so. I think... First of all, I again, this is maybe just my uh, my observation. I think that Tropic has become uh, kind of uh, almost an example in the in, in the genetic world of how to do that. So I think that uh, more and more uh, groups are uh, following our lead and using this philosophy on on how to do it, and uh, that's good. Secondly, and this is definitely not something that we can take uh, credit for, 
is the world has changed a lot over the last few years. So climate change and food prices. So from the regulator side, there's been tremendous advancements over the last year, countries like China, India, Nigeria, UK, a week earlier this week. Europe is now changing. And I think a big part of it is because people understand that you know, you can't uh, you can't feed the world if you tie uh, both hands behind your back. And secondly, climate change in the sense that while you know, four years ago, I would speak with people like yourself or others in open forums, and everyone would ask, "Is it GMO? Is it GMO? Is it GMO?" The question today is very much around: Is it good for uh, climate change or is it bad for climate change? Can you reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions or or not? So the 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 topic of the conversation of change and in, in a way that is good for us because, because yes, we reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we increase biodiversity, etc. Yeah, the framing has completely changed and, and priorities are shifting um, in a way that hopefully has put the GMO, non-GMO probably in a better context, uh, it sounds like. Where would you say you are on the in, in your mind's eye of where you see this going? Where would you classify what stage of the journey are you on today? And have there are, have you been certain stages to this point? You're like, wow, that was an important one that I'm glad we've uh, got to at this point. Wow, it's been it's been a you know, we, we've evolved a lot as a company over time, and I think that I'm, one of the things that I'm proud of, and I, I imagine that my colleagues are very proud, is that we have also been able to to really mature and evolve as a company. I think that even though the, the founders are still in with the business, I mean, including myself, I think we've we've changed a lot. Uh, our, you know, our, we've become more experienced. Uh, our style has changed. Uh, but I would say that where we are today is actually very interesting because uh, three years ago, we completed our uh, Series B funding round. Uh, interestingly, I think it was like the first or second week of Corona in the UK, so it was a very uh, have a lot, a lot of stories to tell uh, the grandchildren I about that. Uh, we were incredibly fortunate that that round was led by Temasek, one of the best investment uh, groups in the world, and you know they they backed us 100. You know there was never a discussion about you know uh, global pandemic. You know talk to us. Uh, you know they were uh, fully with us. But the reason I'm saying is that. At that time, we set a set of three-year strategic milestones for ourselves, which are about to conclude tomorrow. Uh, and interestingly, you know, those three-year strategic milestones were very much around. They represent the company that we were, we were three years ago. So, forty people in compared to one hundred fifty today. Very, very scientific oriented, and a lot of our work over the last few years has been on scientific breakthroughs, how to genet in bananas and how to do disease resistance in rice, etc., etc. And I think now that we are launching our strategic goals for the coming three years, it's a major evolutionary step for us where we are transitioning significantly more towards product commercialization. So bringing our products to the field, to the farmers, to the market, and that requires a, a tremendous evolutionary step for the company. So today, I think we are very much in a in a in a kind of a big evolutionary jump for ourselves, uh, and I think maybe one of the very pleasant surprises for me is that it's, it's it's not painful at all. 
So it's not, we don't see resistance. I think the people within the organization, whether they are uh, technicians, researchers, uh, anyone, they want to see their products in the market. Yeah. So every really, uh, really supportive, very, very enthusiastic towards it. That's great. I've always said that innovation craves distribution and sounds like that's what you've done. You've innovated and now you're to that point where distribution is about to take off and everybody can see their see the fruits of their labor, uh, maybe pun intended on that. What do you think is next for either the industry or Tropic? Like what do you, as you kind of look forward over the next year, five years, 10 years, like any predictions or uh, or things that you foresee? It's a good question. Uh, I, th- I think we've been, we've been fairly good over the last six, seven years in kind of uh, predicting the future. And our life wasn't wasn't hard, you know. We made some bold predictions, but they were they were, you know they were very very simple. You know, food prices are gonna go up here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that it's gonna change much. I think it's actually gonna get much worse. Mm. Fortunately, um, we've had seven good years uh, for the industry, not just for Tropic. But I think the the future is. The, the same challenges that we are seeing today in global weather and agriculture are just going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, for the industry, I believe that even though we are seeing kind of on the macroeconomic level, there's uh, recessions and I think a lot of startups are struggling today, unfortunately. I still believe that in the fields of agriculture or more broadly even impact and sustainability, I think there's still going to be a lot of uh, interest and uh, uh, focus. So I'm very optimistic. And if I was to predict what's going to happen next seven years, the weather is not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. And uh, people mm-hmm. creating more food with less is not going to get any easier. Yeah. It's the reality. And so I think that's why we should all appreciate that we've got people like yourselves uh, tasking themselves with problems like this. I'm assuming that there's people who are listening in who are curious to learn a little bit more about what you guys are up to. Uh, where would you point them to if they wanted to learn more about Tropic Bio? So we, we I don't know, maybe, maybe because we are based in the UK, we're based in Norwich, and I think we're... Uh, quite humble by nature so we we, we rarely we, we don't kind of do press releases every other day etc we, we like being quiet and uh, focusing on our work but i would say probably the best place where we kind of aggregate everything that comes uh, to us is on our uh, linkedin page uh, uh, so unfortunately we don't have yet uh, linkedin or uh, Instagram, etc. So, yeah, so we don't have uh, like Twitter or Instagram, but but LinkedIn we are. Uh, so everything is there. There's always a job uh, advert. Uh, any piece of news that's interesting gets published there. And also on our website, the website is uh, kind of tells our story, and you know, we're always looking for good people to join us. And there's opportunities not just for researchers, but also for people uh, on the business side, strategy. IP regulation. We are uh, will continue to go in the next few years, and uh, we'll we'll love having very good people on board. Yeah, I'll vouch for that. Uh, I think your website is very strong at telling your story, so I would encourage anybody to go check it out. I think it does a nice job of kind of visualizing some of what we've talked about today. Um, appreciate the time. This has been great. I, I've really enjoyed hearing what you guys are up to. I think it's uh, I love the mission. Love what you guys are putting out in the world. 
It's, it's our pleasure. Thank you. We're incredibly proud. We have a phenomenal team. Uh, thank you very much. Have a lovely day.